distinguished adventurers. I literally never got a chance to kick off an episode since we renamed the podcast, so I'm very happy about that. Yay! Welcome to our after action report on Magic and Metal, the uh, the campaign we mini campaign we recently finished under the careful tutelage of our recent DM, Jonathan. And we'll go around the circle, we'll do introductions and all of that, and if you have a drink you want you want to share what you're drinking, you can do that too. But be sure to mention, you know, who you played and who you are and all that. I'll I'll go first because I'm moderating. Haven't done this in a minute. I am Jack Edithil. I played Grisham Vianod um, in Magic and Metal, the uh, sullen sort of uh, loner become math whiz of the uh, of the campaign. I am actually having a combination of uh, Woodford Reserve whiskey as opposed to bourbon with uh, zero sugar ginger ale. And it actually, it's funny, it has a little bit of head. It even looks like a beer superficially, but uh, down the hatch. Here we go. Superlative. I would like to ask to go next for reasons that will become clear very quickly. Well, let's hear from Lauren then. Oh, hi. I'm Lauren Urban. I'm usually the DM when we're doing D&D stuff. But today, and for the last couple episodes, I've had the absolute pleasure of playing Maureen Eddings under the amazing tutelage of Jonathan, our storyteller. And tonight, I'm also drinking Woodford Reserve in a Jack gifted glass. Twinsies. And I will say... I almost was going to have it with ginger ale. This is this is the the bourbon. I I do like to have it with ginger ale. We're out of ginger ale, so oh boo hoo! I just have to have it straight. Oh well. Oh, get out of my cheers. head, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Let's kick it over to our uh, to our recent uh, DM who did a phenomenal job, by the way, Jonathan. Hey, I'm Jonathan, aka Ripblock, and I served as this mini campaigns. GM and storyteller. I, I would credit myself as a writer, but it's very clearly clear that I, I ripped a lot of stuff off. So that's fine. I'm more of an aggregator in this case. I aggregated a bunch of things that I really liked and shuffled it up quite messily and then delivered it to everyone uh, for their enjoyment. And, uh, and it sounds like people had a lot of fun and I was very happy to do it. Fun was had. And we were happy to play it. Um, with that, let's turn it over to uh, sort of the breakout character of this thing. Uh, I feel like the, the man who stole every scene he was in. John, tell us about uh, who you played. Hey, I'm John. I am not drinking Woodford Reserve today. I am drinking <laughs> Liquid Death Grim Leafer, their iced tea. Oh. Pretty solid, I have to say, uh, as far as iced teas go. And uh, I was apparently the breakout character of Alfredo Branzini, the kid who knows how to get things. I think it was mainly because of the accent and the hands that you ca- the audience never got to see. Oh, but they could hear. Trust you, me. You could they, hear they the could hand hear movement the com- through the voice. If only because you could hear the the lack of voice without the hand movement. None of us were yeah, able like when to. Yeah, like I accidentally went Texan that one time. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, one of these days, if we get lucky, we may bring these characters to some sort of live forum or, or some such. Or may- maybe, I don't know, a one-shot stream or something. Something where video or the like is involved, and then you can go absolutely ham with those hands. Yeah. I should just make a gif of you doing the, the hand motion. <laughs> for, for our Patreon, gif, gifable hands. Yeah, gifable hands indeed. It actually sounds like a second album of a band somewhere. Gifable hmm. hands. I'd, I'd listen to it. Yeah. Let's, let's turn it over to our, uh, our, our dungeon master. Well, there's no dungeon, that's because they're game master. GM, DM, I don't know what your initials are, whatever the case may be. Storyteller. So, Jonathan, I've known you for, for, a, for a minute or two. So, I want to talk a little bit about the genesis of this sort of idea and how it came from and all the things you pulled from in pop culture to put it together and the things you were most excited for us to play in in this world that you created for us. Well, 
When I picked Kids with Brooms, it was because I'd seen it played in a few other places. Kids on Brooms presents itself a certain way. It is a it is a way to re-experience the idea of a magical school and kids with magic, but not support certain parties. Because fuck turfs. Because fuck Farts. turfs. Woo. And that's that's one thing I really liked about Kids on Brooms, because the people behind Kids on Brooms are very inclusive. And they tell you so in their books, which is why you should probably buy their books. Uh, anyway, and this was inspired a bit by the uh, Dimension 20 campaign that also used uh, Kids on Brooms. But they, they definitely took a, a different approach by having American students go to this British school. And so I was like, huh, that's, that's a neat idea. What else can we do with it? And... I was just on a nostalgia kick. I was like, all right, I love Terminator. Let's put these kids in the apocalypse. Let's just, let's have them the world's ended. And since they are from a magical world, they are a little bit more equipped to deal with this. One in their abilities and one just in their, in their sort of sense. So uh, once, once we, we had, I had that locked in, it was just a, a matter of telling a, a mix of, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, and then it's like, okay, giving you guys this this area to play in, having a couple of railroady sections, and then uh, and then seeing what you did, you know, when the rails came off at the end. I like to think in an alternate reality, instead of, you know, American kids going to a British school, and your game were British children, and uh, Roanoke Academy was our safety school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. And then we could have pulled off all of our really bad British accents and we could have pretended to be British because that's what you do. Listen, the world of the Roanoke Academy of the Arcane or the Roanoke Arcane Academy, I think it's been both. Who cares? It's it's a vast world. And we have we clearly haven't touched on any particular student and it's been around a while. So who knows? This is a story that might get told later. We'll see. Ooh, a return to this world potentially. Yeah, either before or after Annihilators. Who knows? Exactly. Maybe there's a uh, there's a series that that I watched, and it w- it it got a little nihilistic at times. But at one point, it, it, day five from Rooster Teeth. But there was an episode that was very interesting. It was it was not part of the main series. It was one of the side episodes. And so these these scientists are like, "Hey, we made a breakthrough. I think we cure cancer. Yay! Okay." let's go to sleep and then you see the date and it's clearly a day five episode so you see the date on which they're all going to sleep and it's a day where everything happens so like i could see like maybe the next story of the roanoke academy happening happening right before everything happens and i don't know if i want to get that nihilistic though maybe that won't happen i don't know well maybe we just want to have this be escapist (laughs) it's in (laughs) it's interesting no matter the system I think when you're doing longer campaigns, and by longer, I mean anything longer than like two, three sessions, players have a a comfort place that they settle into about the amount of serious versus silly, amount of, you know, gut-wrenching versus just ridiculousness. Like, I think that Venn diagram is a little different for everybody, but the longer you play in a campaign, the more, you know, like, we all started this very lighthearted and a lot of one shots can be very lighthearted and that kind of thing. But the longer you play in a specific campaign, I think the more you fall back into that 
that sweet spot of everybody's, you know, th- this is what I'm comfortable with. I, I like, you know, a little bit more of this and a little bit more of that. And it's it's been interesting watching that in Kids on Brooms in the Apocalypse because it allowed for both. It allowed for us to be silly because we're kids and it's magic and fun, but then also like genuinely serious gut-wrenching moments because Apocalypse. So I thought it was it was chocolate and peanut butter. Well, let me throw it to you then, Lauren. Like, uh, clearly you had a lot of fun playing Maureen. And it's interesting. You're coming off of this big campaign where we've been playing for the better part of I mean, almost six years, I think, from start to finish our campaign last time. I think almost seven, right? And then you go from being sort of the dungeon master, having to sort of, you know, corral us cats, us wild, tangent, crazy people. And you get to go from yeah. being the dungeon master to really be able to to kick loose, right? And to dive into this marine character a little bit. Do you want to talk about, like, how much fun it would be? I mean, you've done both, of course. You're kind of all over the D&D world these days. But, like, I think it's a little bit different because you're playing with us and you've been playing with us for a very long time. Um, so we want to talk through, like, some of the, the differences between running a game and, and playing a game with a group that you've been with this long. I think the main difference is when I switch... And we've done a couple of other one-shots in the past and where I've gotten a chance to play with y'all. But I think the only major difference is the level of comfort I have with all of you. Like, there's never any doubt when I move into being a player of how we're all going to work together and how fun that's going to be. And there's a relief there because I think some groups, for better or for worse, not, not necessarily a bad thing, the dynamic of the group really is predicated on who's the storyteller, who's the GM, who are the players, you know, especially groups that have been brought together. But the fact that we were friends beforehand and then went into this game, yeah, I've been the the DM for the vast majority of the time, but there was never any hesitation about, oh, all right, someone else is going to be in charge. Great. Like, it was just, it was a very easy gear shift. And then creating Maureen is... I I did what I normally do when I end up playing in a system I haven't played before, because this is my first time playing Kids on Bikes and or Kids on Brooms. And my gut instinct, whenever that happens, it's like, oh, this is the first time I'm going to play in a new system. I 100% go all in on whatever the thing is that that new system does. And so this whole new system that I new to me anyway, is kids on brooms with magic. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going to make... The, the kid that is so happy to be on a broom doing magic, and that's what she's there for. So that was the two things that kind of informed my creation of Maureen. It was the absolute comfort that I I knew anything that I was going to do, y'all were going to run with, and that I could run with all of you. We're all going to have fun. And also, oh, what's this system about? How can I have the most fun doing the thing? <laughs> the system is really kind of one of the most fun parts of the game. The idea that, hey, these kids can do magic. So describe the craziest, most off-the-wall thing you can do, and you roll a dice to see how successful you are. And I think I was just kind of all over the place with mine. Like, I'm trying to break the rules of physics left and right. I'm going into the heat death of the universe, and I'm implementing that into my spells. And I'm like, let's see how I do. And sometimes uh, the dice were kind, and sometimes they were hilarious. I think th- that's... There's a joy to that kind of freedom, especially like I do try to play as as a DM as yes and or no but as possible, 
but there's certainly a lot more specificity in the D&D rules than there are in Kids on Bikes slash Kids on Brooms. And while uh, Jonathan, I'm sure that made a lot more work for you, it also ended up being kind of a, a fun, weird joy of like, we can just make up whatever it is that we want to be doing. And then Jonathan and the dice will tell us how possible that is. There were actually instances in the book where it said, okay, like failing in kids on brooms or kids on bikes doesn't necessarily mean the thing doesn't happen. It just requires, it seems like it requires a lot more adjudication on the GM's part. One of the things that, that could happen is if you failed the wrong kind of check hard enough, you just die. Like it oh. says, and, and especially oh. in the last encounter, I was rolling, and, and this is not part of the rules. This is something I, I kind of made up on the fly. The Annihilator had a D20 in almost all its stats, uh, anything it would roll on. It had a D20, and I think I, I threw in a D12 once. It was meant to be the deadly encounter, because this thing is supposed to be, you know, the badass T-1000. This, I tried to throw a little bit of uh, pride from Full Metal Alchemist, where he, like, kind of unfurls himself, and he has, like, lots of eyes that pop up. I, I wanted to throw some of that in because obviously I like Full Metal Alchemist. I'm showing off my Homoculus tattoo here. Y'all just picked the final fight to roll really well in. Like you matched, none of you failed any of his, any of the DCs that, that he set hard enough for anyone to die. In fact, Marine did, did quite the number on him. I was actually surprised with how well Marine rolled because every... The the opposite was true. Every time Marine made it to attack, he had a defense to see, you know, how effective it would be. And those were the times where he just he just decided to roll single digits, and uh, and and Marine was uh, was just was just throwing uh, throwing haymakers out there, like Fredo in his charm rolls <laughs> with his d twenty, and it didn't roll higher than a nine. I felt so bad. So it was, for, it's all part of the game. It's all fun. For, yeah. for reference, as you emerged from the past and you were you are presented with this situation that was where charm was going to yeah charm was going to be the most effective because it's like okay you have a bunch of weirdos they've just appeared and they have to blend in or else one they something weird could happen or more importantly the annihilator will find you and decide hey i might try and kill you now john you mentioned fredo's charm dice before what was it again it was the highest it could be a d20 yeah and that tracks yeah. for that character so much. I, I want to shift gears a little bit to, to Fredo because I am really, I was a big fan of that. I, clearly a big fan of that character. I loved your delivery of him, your execution of him. I love how brave you are as a role player, John. I love that you throw yourself into whatever really well. We saw it with Carlton Tanks and we saw it with fan Frey favorite. I'll, I'll just say it now. Fredo Branzini. Let's talk a little bit about the origin of the character. I can, I can imagine some of the sources there, but like you seem to have a lot of fun playing him. Yeah. I don't know. I was like, when Jonathan came to us with the idea of doing like kids on brooms, 80s, things like that. And I'm like, man, I just want to play like a swarmy character, you know, something kind of polar opposite of Carlton and just kind of go all in on that whole aspect of things. So I was like, all right, yeah, he's going to be like kind of like the slick mafia type. And when it came to that, I was like, all right, well, we'll kind of like not to get tried to do too stereotypical, but it was like, all right, well, Fredo, Godfather Fredo, in the thing, uh, we never actually got to it in the game, where it has your character's fears, uh, Fredo's fear is open water. <laughs> so if you see the <laughs> Godfather, 
<laughs> I kind of went a little all in. I mean, yeah. This is the game wow. to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, technically, Roanoke, I think, is an island. So you would have had to flown over a yeah, bay. Uh, why do you think he's, like, not that great at flying? Because like, he's just scared the entire time he's doing it. I, I would like to imagine awesome. that the uh, that the broom instructors at, at the Roanoke Academy of the Arcane probably prefer to take students over the water because if they fall the you know the one most of these kids can probably swim or at least you know tread water for a little bit but even if they can't like their instructor's right there and and Mm. they i don't know maybe they have like a vest that looks like a normal you know school vest and it's real smart and it's got like you know a little patch on it but if you fall into water it like puffs up like a flotation device or maybe it doesn't need to puff up it's just floaty even though it looks like a normal you know like woolen school vest or i i don't know something like that fredo <laughs> during his broom lessons i i would imagine probably just didn't have a good time the whitest of knuckles you know just like <laughs> death grip on that broom and fredo uh, remind fredo had a nice broom right uh the vroom broom 5,000 or 2,000, I don't remember. But it has a red pinstripe because that makes it go faster. You know, with his uh, family's ill-gotten gains. Well, and once again, like, I picked the fastest broom I could find. Because if I'm going to be a kid on a broom, I want to be on the fastest broom I could find. It's amazing how we all just kind of latched onto one thing for... Well, and actually, let me ask, Jack, what was the one thing you kind of latched onto for your character that helped build them out? Ah, so... I, I tried to sort of make Grisham different than Travancore. Travancore is gregarious, although a little bit troubled. Travancore is an ambassador. He's social. Kind of like Fredo in some ways, in terms of, you know, his sort of happy-go-lucky nature at times, right? Whereas Grisham, I wanted him to be like the opposite of that. I didn't want to be as quiet as uh, Strabo Changzu, for those who, two, three or four of you remember him, right? Who barely said anything. But I definitely wanted to be more of a sullen character, more of a nihilistic character i want him to be a teenager a sullen teenager like and i think that that's something we all did a good job of i i at least in my view and other people can our listeners can can definitely weigh in on this if if, you know if they have opinions on it like well i felt like everyone was playing a a teenager like authentically i felt like you know maureen was like you know sort of that energy kind of upstart like do devil may care attitude Fredo, that social gregarious like nature with with Grisham, that sort of sullen, moody, post-apocalyptic burnout kind of vibe until you get him talking about math and then he just gets super excited, right? And I love that that was something that became part of his his character arc, right? That he became this like he's really good at math. But for Grisham, I just imagine like sort of, you know, the idea that, you know, immigrants come to to America and other places to improve their lives, right? To escape war, to have the conditions necessary to raise their kids safely and to have them be successful, right? And in turn they instill a work ethic in their in their children, right? And that's sort of one of the reasons that, you know, sometimes people of Indian ancestry are able to succeed to the point where one of them is the vice president, I guess. Right? So but what happens when, you know, a family does all of that and two of the generations down the line the world just ends. Right? It's just all gone. And there's nothing to aspire for. What does that do to a teenager? And that's sort of the attitude I brought to Grisham. Like, like, what does he have to work for? Yes, they're trying to survive and fight, right? And live another day. And, you know, the whole idea of the bison house is just him sort of just taking on this sort of fatalistic attitude, but also this defensive attitude. It's like, the best thing you can do is survive and to help other people around you survive. And that was kind of his, his ethos. 
And that's what I'm talking about with the you can come at this game silly and serious because like that is heartbreaking and amazing. And like there are, there were moments, little tiny moments here, there and everywhere where you drop just something that Grisham would say in a very offhand, uh, an offhand remark here or there about something that knowing that's where he's coming from. Like without knowing that, it'd be like, oh yeah, just you know, kind of a moody teenager. But knowing that, it's like, oh shit, oh ouch, oof. And in some ways, because he is so sullen and a little quieter than Travancore was, it makes him the perfect foil for characters like Marine, like characters like Evelyn, characters like Fredo, right? Because Fredo talked quite a big deal, and I love the idea that like Fredo, it's his relationship. Like Fredo sees like. You know, Grisham is his buddy, like, you know, one of those close friends. And then, you know, Grisham's like, yeah, Fredo's all right. <laughs> it's also like, the, with, especially with the way the dice rolls went, Fredo talks a big game. Can't always back it up. <laughs> <laughs> but came through in the end. Came through the end by changing, turning things into giant gummy worms. I mean, well, not just the giant gummy worms. I mean, the end, the end. Saving yeah. the uh, the professor's life. Like. Yep. You talked him, you literally talked him into living, which was awesome. Yeah, because he was, he was dead. Like, yeah, he was dead. He was dead, dead. And it was only because of your roles. Like, if you had rolled any less, he would have stayed dead. And he, he was like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> stop talking. You're way too annoyed. Yeah. I've come back from the dead to tell you to shh. And let me tell you, if that had happened, I think Grisha may have made the decision to sort of magically disguise himself as Julian to make sure and stay in the past to make sure that everything goes the way it was supposed to go. So, oh, I, that's cool. I had thought of some real weird, timey wimey stuff that I was thinking about throwing at y'all. One of them that I did not go with, uh, and I kind of it was sort of I I maybe been waffling on it and uh, making this twist, but the. A999 was actually Julian Fussell Snap. Like, really Julian Fussell Snap from like a far future where he decides, you know what? None of this is really worth it. And he becomes even more nihilistic than even Grisham is capable of. So he actually came back. He actually started everything. And then he's like, all right, well, I got to hop back to the past to make sure this all goes well. And that was going to be the twist. That would have been awesome. Jack, I and I and that would have happened. Like that, that would have been a total, like totally allowed. And that's that's one of the things that I really liked about this gaming system is that it encourages a lot more sort of uh, uh, collaborative storytelling than maybe other systems like D and D that have to be a little more rigid by design. Since this is a little flowy, it allowed for moments like that. And and, and you know, speaking of Evelyn. When, uh, when Jules was in here, she definitely brought that energy that made that collaboration a lot easier. Oh, we're at Roanoke. We're in North Carolina. We're in North Carolina. Uh, and, and this highway and that highway. Oh, so Bucky's has come this far north. Yes, they have. <laughs> the future. Yeah, I just love the creativity and the energy she brought to her character. The idea that she's sort of this sort of like accidental bully with art installations and stuff like that. That... Collaboration. We got to see her briefly, and I like that everyone in this group is like sort of super creative. And to see that manifest itself in a different world than Dungeons and Dragons in a world a little bit more similar to our own was really rewarding. 
Well, and to then also have what is very much a a young person, a teenager, a, a young adult snippy at someone like to to have that kind of relationship between her character and mine of like, oh, my character is, has very complex feelings about your character because of this thing that happened. And like, you know, yeah, we got to get along and yeah, we maybe still respect each other, but you you did a thing and I don't really understand why you hate me, but now you hate me. And yeah, that was a lot of fun to play with. That w- That felt very much high school drama. Which is sort of the point of, of of this, is that we get to play out, we could choose to play that out even more, like with this system, and that that is a valid choice, if you if that is something that we wanted to explore. I'm pretty happy with the choices that, that y'all made, and I'm glad that that we got to where we were going in the amount of time, because I think... I think with this this particular story, it's not going to be the kind of thing that's going to be around for twenty episodes, like eight, eight, or I guess nine episodes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Someone might have forgotten. <laughs> the editor might have forgotten to tell the person who's in charge of the social media what she had done when she had done some editing. That's not the social media person's it, fault, though. It's a very Peter Jackson. Oh, I'm making two movies, and then the studio's like, eh, you know, not not really. You're making three movies, bud. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh no. On that note, like I, I think we have time for one more question. So for the character people who play characters and for Jonathan who created the world, like I don't want to give away too much in case we get a chance to go back to this world, but like we'll go sort of Lauren, then John, then Jonathan. What does the world look like in the immediate short term for uh for your characters or for their own academy at large? Uh, Lauren, why don't you go first? I've always considered Maureen in a lot of ways like a golden retriever. Like very much enthusiastic and yeah, let's do the thing and friendly and not necessarily the brightest bulb. And so I feel like after this whole experience, she's still dedicated to learning chronomancy, but it's like part of it is she now just wants to study it and not necessarily go back in time. But also that moment of, and I think I talked about it in the last episode of of Grisham summoning a pizza. <laughs> and like, I think those two things together, the idea of like, because I think in her mind, you don't summon a pizza. You reach into the past and pull someone else's pizza out of the past. <laughs> Bam, here's a pizza. And so I feel like she just goes all in on that. And I don't know where it takes her. But yeah, I think I think she... She's not as concerned with the future as far as like rebuilding and recovering and all of that because ah, there's smarter people who are going to take care of that. But can I pull a pie out of the path? Like she's very much into that. Well, but what about Fredo Branzini? How'd I do? Not bad. Okay. Four out of five. Three out of five. I, I mean, for growing up in the Northeast, it's pretty, pretty on brand. I would say Fredo, he knows what he did. He, he saved the world. He saved these teachers' lives. And so, like, he's just going to kind of, like, coast the rest of his tenure at <laughs> Roanoke Academy. And every time a teacher starts, like, hey, Fredo, like, you got to turn in your homework and be like, mm, I thought I did that time I killed the Annihilator and saved your life. So, yeah, he's just going to become, like, even more swarmy and just, like, work on building those connections with people and trying to use his knowledge of the past and uh, what he did to save the future to get every inappropriate advantage he can get. 
Wow, that's amazing. I believe it. That and it's on brand. It. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in real quick with what I think what's going to happen with Grisha, and then I'll, we'll kick it to Jonathan and the Roanoke writ large. So Grisha was a character sort of defined by his cynicism and his survival ethos. And now, like, the, the, these experiences have changed him. I feel like he's got almost a little bit of hope. He's sort of outgrown that sort of teenage sort of like, you know, sarcasm a little bit or sardonic cynicism, right? And now he actually realizes there's something to fight for. Uh, what does that Grisham look like? How does that change him? What does that do to him, especially if that hope gets shattered? So if I get a chance to return to Grisham, I feel like he's going to be sort of different in a lot of ways. And I wanted to learn some math. Maybe I'll talk to my friend Maddie to see if he can teach me some things about discrete mathematics and, uh, and theoretical things so I can throw that into the character. It drops some hardcore calculus on us, and none of us will will be able to understand it at all. But it'll be impressive. There's no I, limit I to how far probably I'll go for that. will. <laughs> I I remember a little bit. So, what does Roanoke look like once they they get back, Jonathan? I think obviously there's going to be some celebrations. There's going to be some partying. There's going to be the Ewok Village is going to light up with fireworks as uh, <laughs> kids on brooms fly overhead. We're going to pan to different cities. Seattle, Washington, there's a big celebration by the pier and, you know, they're carrying a uh, annihilator corpse body over to toss it into Puget Sound. You know, just a Oof. tableau of different celebrations that I've obviously not pulled from any other media at all. Nope. Nope. Uh, and nope. I, I think after that... There's going to be some complications because now Penta's mundane humans are aware of Arcanus, you know, uh, humans with, with magical abilities. What does that turn into? How does that help out with the rebuilding? How does that help out with not just rebuilding, but the future in general? Because I think we've all seen how real humans have used technology. It's not great. Would anything be learned? from this whole experience. And there's a very cynical part of me that would say no, again, based on real life. But maybe this is the place to have to leave that cynicism in the past and make a story where maybe things do work out. But that's something that I'm, uh, you know, if we return here that I'm going to think about and maybe explore. Just for a moment, though, Everyone, everyone is 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 celebrating and happy and just taking in the freedoms of having blown up a proverbial Death Star. Again, <laughs> I didn't. I just made that up. I, I, like you said, we're we're all creative people here. Clearly, I just made all of that bit up from 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 my head from the old noggin. Listen, Jonathan, you are you are taking the same steps that all of us DMs have taken, which is to take all of the stuff we love and put it into a blender and have it come out the other side as a D&D game. So. I made a three-year D&D campaign with my friends that was sorting through my hatred of the ending of Lost. I am... <laughs> a rock it was... was moved and had to put place back. That's six years of your life. Yeah. Listen, D&D is not therapy, but it can be therapeutic. It can be cathartic. Yeah. yeah, some of us are still upset about lost, you know, screwing up the servers for like Jenga Jam. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit! Oh, I, I forgot, forgot about, about that. that. Oh man, it's been like oh, that's man. like thirteen years ago, right? Oh, oh wow! Gosh. But I remember those days. <laughs> what great days they were. Um, so of course I want to thank Jonathan for creating this world for us to sandbox for us to play in, and for you know Lauren, Jules, and John for uh for coming up with these really off characters that, in my view at least, felt like you know authentic teenagers 
coping with teen issues against the backdrop of a post-apocalyptic world. And as we prepare ourselves for our return to the world of D&D, like, let's talk about that movie that's out there. So I, I will preface this. We're going to do just a really, really quick, 100% spoiler-free review of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. And then if you're interested in a slightly more deep dive, then come by our Patreon and, you know, subscribe to our Patreon where for just a buck, you can get all sorts of fun things. I haven't really plugged the Patreon that much, uh, except at the end of the show. So I thought I'd do a little bit here. But yes, most of us on the call have seen the D&D movie. And, and so that's one of the reasons that we're going to keep this spoiler free. And so mine is, I really enjoyed it. And I will admit that I had relatively low expectations, but the movie vastly outperformed even my middling expectations. Like, I really had a lot of fun. I thought it was a treat. I thought it was, I mean, it's not saying much is way better than that other D&D movie. Well, I mean, oh. I love Snail, and Jeremy Irons is just a great villain. I mean, Jeremy Irons... <laughs> <laughs> no, that DVD universe movie bless sucked. Him. It was terrible. <laughs> yes, yes. But universe bless Jeremy Irons for just trying his little heart out. But anyway, Honor Among Thieves, really a lot of fun. I will, this this is not a spoiler because it's in the trailers and everything. It's been interesting having discussions with people about Chris Pine's character, about whether he is actually a bard or not. And I have thoughts. We'll get into that. <laughs> we'll get into that later. We'll get into that later. How about the rest of you? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. So I went with my wife, Katie, who doesn't play as much D&D as me. She's still familiar with the lore and all. She enjoyed it just as much as I did. But I think I enjoyed it a little bit more because like, there's all these little tidbits that are like fan service mm -hmm. where it doesn't detract from the actual film itself. So like, keep an eye on things in the background sometimes. You're like, oh. I recognize that creature from the monster manual. And it's just doing its thing in the background. And you're like, <laughs> but that literally does adds nothing to the story. And it's just there to build the world and make it feel more immersive. And like, it's something that you're familiar with and living and this beautiful thing where as opposed to just being like, yep, here we are on a CGI green screen and doing fantasy, making money things, you know, where it's like, no, the, the creators, <laughs> They've played D&D, you could tell. You've got your typical, spoiler-free, you know, D&D &D party dynamics of, like, failing upwards, I think is the best way to say. You mm -hmm. know? How many times have uh, the Heralds of Greenness failed upwards? <laughs> Too many to count. Yeah, I know. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I can't wait to uh, for it to come out on home so I can get the Blu-ray to see all the behind-the-scenes and the bloopers. Because I'm imagining it's going to be amazing. I hope so. Jonathan, how about you? So my expectations were, I tried to keep them low because I honestly didn't know what to expect. One of the things that I liked about the run-up to the movie was the fact that during all the pressers, the cast seemed to be having a lot of fun. Mm. And for context, this was about the same time that Chris Pine was promoting another movie, Something Something Darling. It was that uh, Olivia Wilde performed Pew movie where his pressers looked like prisoner interrogations. Oh. He was clearly not having a good time there. So watching like the different events that they were that the cast was going to, oh, this was a different Chris Pine and he seemed to be having fun and uh, Michelle Rodriguez and and everyone else seemed to be having a lot of fun promoting mm -hmm. this movie. 
and talking about D&D and how they had played D&D uh, during the production, so they were familiar with the game. My expectations started to r- rise a little bit, and then we know a lot of people who were lucky enough to see it before it hit the theaters in general. All of their reviews were glowing, and I was like, okay, okay. The Rotten Tomatoes score was really good, and I'm like, okay, my, my expectations can't be low anymore. And my expectations were, were blown away. This felt to me like not only a really, really fun movie, not perfect, but, but a lot of fun. It felt like a D&D campaign. Like, yeah. it felt like an arc, like maybe, maybe not a full campaign, but, but a little like, you know, nine or ten session mini arc. Uh, and I think one thing that really stood out to me when you look at the characters, like, and it's pretty clear who the main characters are. They're Michelle Rodriguez. They're they're Chris Pine. And those characters tend to be pretty quippy. They're the funnier ones. And everyone else seems to be a little stiff and a little expositional, like NPCs, as if one person is playing all of them and voicing all of them and <laughs> and spouting dialogue that the characters and the audience need to know and i thought that was a really interesting way to do it and i Mm -hmm. really enjoyed that because it again it separated out who were the pcs and who were the npcs in this campaign and that was fantastic and and then or a dmpc uh, yeah exactly we'll we'll get to that (laughs) we'll talk about 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 them we'll talk about uh, that but but yes i i i loved it uh i i what's been really cool is uh some Folks that I know that I play Destiny with took their kids to it. They are not D&D players, and they loved it too. And I think that's one of the best reviews that that this movie could get, is if you know nothing about D&D, you're in for a fun movie with all sorts of stuff going on. And if you love D&D, you're in for a fun movie, and there's a lot of stuff going on. This sounds like one I gotta make time for. With that, you're, if you want to hear more about this conversation and they'll delve in the spoiler territory, be sure to join our Patreon. You can get all the details probably in our end stinger. But for now, I got a chance to sort of put my podcast host hat on for the first time in a little while. So for those of you who've listened to us for the better part of 17 years, thank one, thank you. Two, enjoy this blast in the past. And we got to do a little butt cast a little bit with our D&D thoughts, non-spoiler. And of course, you know, join our Patreon for the uh, the spoilery end of things. But, uh, but I guess we can take us out. Yeah, I mean, I think that was awesome. And uh, Jack... And everybody, we'll see you next encounter. Bye. Maybe that next encounter might be campaign two. Maybe. Thanks for listening to our adventure. If you've enjoyed our show, then visit us at distinguishedadventurers.com. There you can find links to our podcast and social media, pictures and bios of our cast, info on our Patreon, and much more. Thanks again, and we'll see you next encounter. We appreciate all of our Patreon patrons and extend a special thanks to our top-tier patrons. Thank you, Forrest from Stabby Quest, Jesse Florence, Nate Zakari, Rebecca, a.k.a. Bunny Monster, Sir Narvi and Sailor Tweak, John Adi, Linnea Boyev, Lori, a.k.a. Calamity Jane, and Hunted Shadows, LLC.